beginning in John 20, verse 19. I'm going to read through verse 23. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That is the word of the Lord. That is the good news. So if you haven't figured out kind of what I'm doing leading up to Pentecost is we're looking at this interim period between the resurrection and the ascension. And in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, it records for us these encounters that the disciples of Jesus had with him. Now, what the Bible doesn't tell us is for those 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, was Jesus constantly on earth, always with his disciples, or was Jesus coming and going? It doesn't say. But we have specific instances, specific encounters that are recorded for us. And here in John's gospel, this encounter recorded here in John chapter 20, verse 19, tells us that it was the same day at evening being the first day of the week. In other words, it was the day of his resurrection. And all the disciples knew is that Jesus' tomb was empty, but they didn't know what had happened to the body. Even though Jesus told them that he would be resurrected. They were so dismayed of of everything that had happened because they had put their hope in a Messiah who would literally come and literally overthrow the powers that be, overthrow the Roman Empire, and literally, literally restore the physical kingdom of Israel in that day. And then would rule from the temple. That's what the Jews were looking for. And when Jesus came, they thought, perhaps this is the Messiah. Many of them believed. Many believed that he was the Messiah. But many of those who believed fell into unbelief when they saw Jesus crucified. Because they could not believe that God would send his Messiah only to be crucified And killed. And when Jesus was crucified and was buried in that tomb, many of those who followed him, believing he was the Messiah, remember just a few days prior to that, at the triumphal entry, there are hundreds, thousands of people proclaiming Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the King. Hosanna to the Son of David. Thousands upon thousands believed Jesus was the Messiah. But when Jesus was brought before Pilate, what was the cry of the people? Crucify him. And when Jesus was actually crucified, and when Jesus actually died, very many of those people who had believed he was the Messiah no longer believed that. Because their faith was not in a Messiah who would die. Their faith was in a Messiah who would conquer the Roman Empire, and restore the kingdom to Israel. What they did not realize is Jesus did that in a way that was so much more powerful and so much more eternal than any earthly kingdom that could have been set up, than any earthly army that could have overthrown another, than any earthly throne that he could have ever set upon. What Jesus did at the cross was conquer the world, conquer all kingdoms of all times, And become the Lord of all. But those who did not have eyes to see. Could not see that reality. And even the scripture tells us. Had the rulers of this world known. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had they known the victory. That actually would have come through the cross. That did come through the cross. 
they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. The good news is, it wasn't up to them ultimately because it was God's preordained plan to send Jesus, for Jesus to die, to be crucified, and to conquer the world for all eternity. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He conquered the world for all eternity. He's already won the war. And we are here now to occupy, to be busy about the, king, the business of the kingdom, to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. To see the expansion of his kingdom until that day Jesus literally comes again in person and sets foot on this earth to eternally rule and reign on this earth with his people. That day is coming, whether it's soon or whether it's far away, it does not matter. Our job is the same. Our commission is the same. To preach the kingdom, to see the kingdom come, to see his will be done right here on earth. In our lives, in our hearts, in our families, in our churches, in this earth. That's what God wants his people to be busy doing. Working, praying, preaching, proclaiming, living in such a way that his kingdom comes and his will is done. That is what Jesus accomplished. He has given us the power to do that. He has given us the victory. It's already been achieved. We just have to walk it out. The end is not in question. It's not. So there is a power and a peace and an authority that God's people are to walk in today. It comes from the power, peace, and authority that Jesus walked in. He promised this to his church before he ascended to his Father. The power, peace, and authority in the life of the believer comes through the indwelling life of the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said, we're leading up to Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection, God poured out his spirit on all flesh. And we're going to talk about what that means and, and, and what that doesn't mean. And here in John chapter 20, in John's account of the Great Commission, and that's what this is, we see a consistency that Jesus is commanding his disciples to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to receive the Holy Spirit. In order for us to go out and do the work of the kingdom, we have to be empowered by his Spirit. To try to do his kingdom work in our own power is futile. It doesn't matter how wise we are. It doesn't matter how rich we are. It doesn't matter how much earthly power we have. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, cannot be built with earthly power. It can't be built with earthly wisdom. It can't be built with earthly riches. It must come through the power of God, the power of his spirit. It must come through a people empowered by the spirit of God. And this is why Jesus commands his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. So let's look at how Jesus comes to these fearful disciples who are hunkered down in their homes thinking that any minute the authorities are going to come and carry them away the way they came at night and carried Jesus away when they were in the garden with him. Jesus came to his disciples in power and in peace. In power because Jesus didn't just walk through unlocked doors. Jesus walked in through the power of God, however he did it. Remember the story when, when Paul and Silas are chained up and they're in the prison and they're in chains and they're singing praises and all of a sudden an earthquake happens and their chains fall off and the prison doors open. However God does things, he does them through his power. However Jesus walked into this dwelling where the disciples were. He did it in his power. It didn't matter that there were doors or walls. It didn't matter if there was geographic distance. This is the creator of heaven and earth. And he comes to his disciples in power, proclaiming peace. He comes to them 
in the power of his resurrection. And his disciples are hiding for fear of their lives. And when Jesus comes into their midst, he proclaims to them peace. It shows us that Jesus can go anywhere he wants to go. Anytime he wants to go there and do anything he wants to do. He is not dependent upon us. He is not waiting for us to give him permission. He wasn't standing at the door knocking saying, please disciples, please open the door for me. No, he just went right in. And when he goes in, in the power of his resurrection, he goes in the peace of the gospel. His disciples are expecting their enemies to show up at any moment, but instead Jesus shows up. It was very surprising for them. In light of the recent events of that day and of that weekend, they did not know what to expect. They were not expecting peace, though. They were expecting just the opposite. They had witnessed Jesus be arrested. They had witnessed Jesus be scourged. They had witnessed Jesus crucified. They witnessed Jesus die. They saw him removed from the, from the cross, put in a tomb. And all they knew that evening was his body was gone and they didn't know what had happened to Jesus. The last they saw of him, he was dead, very dead. But now he appears in their midst very alive. And they are very alarmed. And when Jesus comes in, he speaks to them peace. He proclaims peace be with you. Peace was the very thing they did not expect at that moment, but it is exactly what they needed and what Jesus provided. This is what Jesus does for us. Sometimes we're not expecting what Jesus provides for us. Sometimes we don't even know what we really need, but God always knows and God always provides in his time, at the right time, exactly what we need. So if we are in a situation and we feel like, in fact, we're very sure we need something right now, but we're not getting it from God, there is a good chance that God knows better than we do. And in our time, in his time, he will provide exactly what we need. And this is what he did with these disciples. Not looking for peace, he comes proclaiming peace. And after proclaiming peace, he showed them his hands and his side, and they were glad when they saw the Lord. They were glad. They were sad, but then they were glad. They were afraid, but now they are at peace because they had seen the Lord. He revealed himself to them. Now, I'm going to tell you this. Jesus is not going to come physically walking into your room one night or one day. And show himself physically to you so that you can have peace. But here's what Jesus will do and what Jesus has done. He has already come. He has already revealed himself. And he has given you faith, which means he's given you the eyes of faith to see him and to know him. Even though he is not literally physically in your midst as he was with these disciples. But just like these disciples who needed to see Jesus in order to have peace, we must have eyes to see Jesus. And we must know Jesus if we are to know his peace. If we do not know Jesus, we cannot have his peace. There will be no peace. Peace is not just a sense of calm or well-being that God provides for us. I mean, we all want peace of mind, peace in our hearts, peace in our homes, peace in the world. But peace is much more than just a sense of well-being that I can experience or, or have. Peace is more than an emotional state. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus himself 
He himself is our peace. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. Listen to these verses penned by the apostle Paul. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. Think about that for a moment. Peace is not just a feeling. Jesus himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, from Jew and Gentile, God has created in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access By one spirit to the Father. This is the good news. You have access to the Father now by the Spirit of God that Jesus has put in you. Peace be with you was a common greeting among the Jews. But the peace Jesus speaks of here is anything but common. Jesus is declaring the peace that he bought and that he became through his finished work on the cross. In the power of his resurrection, Jesus came proclaiming peace. The peace he now provides to all who trust in him is more than a common greeting of peace. It's more than just a a nice feeling It's more than just being able to lay your head on your pillow at night and go to sleep unhindered. His is the peace of the gospel that surpasses all understanding. This is the peace of God that is provided to all believers by Jesus the Christ. This is why we should be able to lay our heads down at night and go to sleep unhindered. Just as Jesus slept unhindered in the back of the boat during the midst of the storm. And his disciples were wondering, how can you sleep in the midst of this storm? We are all about to perish. Do you not care about us? Jesus gets up and he says, oh ye of little faith. And when we allow the uncertainty of the world, when we allow the events that are taking place, I don't care how small, I don't care how great they are. I don't care if it's a head cold or it's a worldwide pandemic. There is nothing, nothing that should rob us of our peace, the peace that Jesus gives to us. Now, I know that's easier for me to say than it is to actually do. I get that. But just because it's difficult sometimes to walk in peace does not mean that that is not exactly what we are to pray for, to strive for, to seek after. Because Jesus made a promise of his peace to his people. And God is not a respecter of persons. He's not going to give one person peace and not give it to another. The peace of Jesus is available to those who will trust him, to those who will look to him, to those who will Follow him and obey him. The good news is hostilities have ceased with all who are redeemed by Jesus. See, peace is not just my ability to lay my head down and go to sleep at night. Peace is knowing that I am not the enemy of God anymore. And it's not because of what I have done. It is because of what Jesus has done. Jesus brought peace He brought a cessation of hostility between God and all of those whom he has redeemed. Now all who are in Christ have peace with God. Truly, he is a peace that surpasses. His is a peace that surpasses our understanding. Therefore, we should rejoice at the words of the Savior who declared, Peace be with you. Jesus truly provides And Jesus truly is our peace. 
This is why the scripture exhorts us to be anxious for nothing. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. What peace he has provided for us. Do you realize this, church? It is so easy to lose your peace in the world that we live in today. Everything we watch, everything we hear, everything we read just about, unless it's the scripture. Everything that the world puts out in any form is robbing us of peace. Good news does not sell. Negative news sells. And so the world is filled with the negativity of everything that is going wrong and every reason why the world is ending and everything is failing and we're all going to die or get sick or fail or fall or suffer. I mean, it's 24-7. It is what the news does to make money. And they don't care about you. They don't care about your well-being or your peace. They just care about their bottom line. And people are glued to televisions and they're glued to radios and they're glued to print media and online media trying to find out what's going to happen, what's happening And what we need to do is unglue ourselves from those things and glue ourselves to the scripture and begin to read the inspired word of God because God will tell us exactly what's going to happen. What's going to happen is Jesus has already overcome and we are victorious. Say, yeah, but what if I get coronavirus, Pastor Jeff, and I die? Well, then you'll go to glory if you're trusting in Jesus. And I'm not saying go try to get coronavirus or go be unwise. I'm saying don't live in fear. The Bible is very clear from beginning to end that we are to be a people who are not to fear. Yet everything in the world around us is telling us you should be afraid. You should be fearful. You should be afraid of pandemics. You should be afraid of elections. You should be afraid of Anything and everything you can be afraid of, the world wants you to be afraid of it. And the last thing the world wants you to do is to trust in Jesus and to live your life in a way in which fear has no power over you. Do you know when you do that, the world is going to get mad at you? People get mad at you. Why, aren't you afraid? No, I'm not. Well, you're stupid. You better be afraid. I'm sorry, I'm not afraid. It's people like you that are causing this pandemic to spread all over the place. No. My lack of fear has nothing to do with the spread of a pandemic. My lack of fear has nothing to do with any of that. I'm just obeying what my God has told me. Fear not, for I am with you, says the Lord. Yes, he also said, be as gentle as dove and as wise as serpents. Yes, we are to use wisdom. But you can be wise without being fearful. And that's exactly what we are to be. That peace that Jesus gives to us, the Bible says, is a peace that surpasses all understanding. This is why the world can't comprehend it. This is why the world gets upset. And frustrated with Christians. Because they don't understand how we can have peace in the midst of the storm. And so they write it off as ignorance. Oh, you're just ignorant. You don't understand viruses. You don't understand biology. You don't understand whatever. The reality is no. You don't understand Jesus. You don't understand God. You don't understand the promise that God has given to his people who have no reason to fear. You are the one who does not understand. You are the one who is ignorant. You are the one who is blind. You are the one who is deaf. You are the one who is really in sad shape. 
I'm telling you, church, that is the way we need to look at people in the world who are losing their minds over these things. Don't, don't be like that. Don't let that contagion. That's the most dangerous thing about this pandemic. It's not the virus. It's the contagious fear that is spreading everywhere. And that contagion of fear has, has bled over into the body of Christ. And you have people who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus who are fearful when God says, don't be fearful. Who are anxious when God says, be anxious for nothing. Oh yeah, but except the Apostle Paul didn't know what the coronavirus was when he wrote that to the Philippian church. Really? The spirit that inspired that knows everything. The God who this word speaks of is the God who has allowed this virus and this pandemic to spread across the world. God has allowed it. Don't think for one moment he has not. He has. He has a plan and a purpose for it. And we should not fear it. We should not be anxious concerning these things. So Jesus comes to his disciples in power, proclaiming peace. And Jesus commissions his disciples to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to verses 21 and 22. So Jesus said to them again, emphasizing again, peace to you. No reason to be afraid here. Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus proclaims peace to his disciples again. It was a welcome it was a word of assurance. It was a welcome word of assurance for these disciples who are fearing for their lives. That proclamation of peace should be a welcome word of assurance for us today. Many who are fearing literally for their lives. Take the same comfort today that Jesus gave to his disciples when he said peace to you. So we should be at peace. Whatever their futures held, Jesus promised that his peace was with them. Do you understand? They're there in this, in this house, in this dwelling place, hiding out. Their future is uncertain. They've seen what the, the rulers of their day did to Jesus, and they have no reason to expect less. They're thinking that the same people that crucified Jesus are going to come for us. Their future, their lives were very uncertain at that time. But here comes Jesus proclaiming to them the certainty of his peace. You do realize that Jesus proclaiming peace is not saying to them nothing bad's going to happen to you. Because the reality is, except for John, church history tells us every one of these disciples, every one of these apostles were martyred. They died. They were killed. They didn't just die. They were killed. They were sawn in two. They had their heads chopped off. They were crucified. Various ways, various forms of execution. They were all killed for their faith. Yet Jesus, knowing this, is saying to them, peace to you. Now see, that doesn't equate for us. Because peace to us means I'm not going to die, yet the Bible promises that we're all going to die. Peace to us means nothing bad's going to happen, yet something bad happened to all of these people, all of these disciples. Yet Jesus still proclaimed peace to them, and he still proclaims peace to us today. Even though sickness and disease and death is a certainty eventually for all of us. We should have peace in the face of any storm, any situation. Jesus assured peace would go with these disciples, and he assures that peace for us. So he commissions his disciples to go in his name to proclaim the gospel. With these words, he commissions them, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Jesus commissions his disciples to go, but not without first receiving the Holy Spirit. 
They are not to go fulfilling the commission without first receiving the power of the Spirit. Jesus commands his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they are filled with power from on high. But right here in this encounter, Jesus comes to them and he proclaims peace to you. And he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Whether they actually received the Holy Spirit then at that moment, or whether Jesus was foreshadowing what would actually take place on the day of Pentecost, it doesn't really matter. The fact is, what we need to understand is that Jesus is telling his disciples that they must be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to go out and fulfill the commission that he has given to them. Jesus was no doubt alluding to the fact that his disciples were to receive the Holy Spirit and power to be witnesses to him. In other words, don't go out and try to be a witness for Jesus unless Jesus is with you. Don't just go out and use the name of Jesus. You better have Jesus dwelling in you. You better have the Spirit abiding in you because the name of Jesus is not a magic potion that you can just use when it's convenient for you. This is what the seven sons of Sceva thought they could do when they tried to cast the demon out of the guy who was possessed. And the demon from within the guy says, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but I don't know who you guys are. And they left that place undressed, running from a demon. You don't want that to happen to you. Make sure you've got the real thing. Make sure Christ is in you and he is your hope of glory. Make sure the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. And if he is, then you have been endued with power from on high. And you have been empowered and equipped to go and to do what Jesus has commanded you to do. Jesus breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The word in the imagery used here is consistent with Ezekiel 37 in the valley of dry bones where God tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the dry bones. And when Ezekiel prophesies, the breath comes into them and the bones live. This is what we do when we go preaching the gospel. We are commanding dry bones to live as God puts his breath in them. This is also an allusion to God breathing his breath into the first man of dust created in the garden. The new creation in Jesus Christ, we just read this in Ephesians chapter 2, he has created in himself one new man. The new creation in Jesus Christ is also empowered to life as God breathes into it the Holy Spirit. Jesus commands that his church be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're to be filled with his spirit, his breath, and his power so that we will have life and power to be witnesses to him. By the Holy Spirit, we walk in his peace. By the Holy Spirit, we walk in his power. By the Holy Spirit, we walk in the authority that Jesus has given to us, to his people, to his church. As followers of Jesus, we are commanded to live under the power and the control of the Holy Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit. We are to no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh. We are to do this in the Spirit's life and power, the Spirit that dwells in us. Remember, how does Jesus live in us? He lives in us by His Spirit. It is the Spirit in us that empowers us. It is the Spirit in us that gives to us all that we need to obey the commands of Jesus. Jesus commands his church to be filled with the Spirit so that his church will walk in the power of the Spirit to give witness to him and to give glory to the Father. The Spirit in you, the life of the Spirit in you is to be manifest through you. The Bible calls this the fruit of the Spirit. 
Sometimes we like to romanticize about the power of the Spirit, and we want to envision ourselves going out, casting out demons and raising dead people and healing sick people, and, and I believe in all of those things. But those are the exceptions by far. What God really commands us to go out and do is to manifest His love and His joy and His peace and His patience and His kindness and His goodness his gentleness, his faithfulness, and his self-control. And God will, in the, most, in the most unexpected and innocent ways, in the most unsuspecting ways, God will help us to see how well we manifest that. He puts us in situations. He's allow, he allows us to come into situations where we have to exercise those things, where we have to manifest those things. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And when we don't, it's not a point of condemnation for us. It's a point of realization for us that I need God's fruit to increase in my life. When I'm impatient, it should remind me that I need the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I need to pray. I need to seek God. I need to lay those things down that are causing me to be impatient and give those to God and trust Him to help me be patient in those moments. In those situations where my peace has been robbed because I am uncertain about my future, uncertain about my condition or my situation or that of a loved one, I need to be reminded that God can give me a peace that passes understanding. I know what the facts are. I know what the, the reality on the ground is. And it's not very peaceful. But God says, yes, I understand that. But I also know that I can give you a peace that will pass understanding. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the things we need to manifest on a regular basis through our life. This is what Jesus is telling us when he is commanding us to receive the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to live under the control and the power of the Holy Spirit, not to live under the control and power of my immediate situation and circumstance. We are not to do that. We are to live under the power of the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, and therefore not fulfill the lust of the flesh, which very often wants us to fear and to worry and to be stressed. Trust Jesus. He is trustworthy. He knows, even when we do not know. So Jesus authorizes his church to proclaim the forgiveness or the retention of sin. So let's read this. So Jesus says to them, I'm going to begin in verse 21, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Then he says this in verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jesus authorizes his church to proclaim forgiveness or retention of sin. Now, what does that mean? Before the Reformation, and actually the Catholic Church still believes this, that, that priests and, and those clergy in the church have the power to forgive sins or not. I don't believe this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. We are authorized to proclaim the forgiveness of sin based on a person's trust in the finished work of Christ. That is always the context and the condition of forgiveness afforded by God. This does not mean Christians, clergy or laymen, have been authorized to forgive sins or not. I don't have the authority to say to you, your sins are not forgiven. Oh, really? Well, here's, you, you, you think that? You think that's the way it really is? Oh, I don't like that. 
Well, I'm going to tell you right now, your sins are not forgiven. That's it right there. Your sins are not forgiven. No, we don't have the power to do that. Only God has the power to forgive sins. I don't have the power to decide whether your sins are forgiven or not. What I can do is based on your based on what you do with the finished work of Christ, based on your profession of faith or not, based on that, I can tell you whether your sins have been forgiven or not. But I don't have the power to forgive your sins or to cause your sins to be retained because I don't have the power and no man has the power to save you. No priest, no pastor, no man has the power to save another man. Only Jesus has the power to save us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so it is a proclamation of the assurance of forgiveness that Jesus is saying we have the authority to proclaim. This is the context. If you are trusting in Jesus, you have been forgiven. Let me say that again right now. If you are trusting in Jesus, you have been forgiven. You notice I didn't say if you live a perfect life, if you do a bunch of good works, if you give a lot of money to the church, if you, if you, no, you're not earning your salvation, you're not buying your salvation. If you trust in Jesus, you are forgiven. By grace, you also have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and have become a new creation in Christ. If that is true for you, I can tell you with all authority that your sins have been forgiven. Conversely, if you are not trusting in Christ, you have not been forgiven. In other words, your sins are retained. If you have not been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and are not a new creation in Christ, I can tell you with the equal authority that your sins are not forgiven. They are indeed retained. That is what Jesus is telling his disciples. And who are his disciples? Professional clergy? No. Anyone and everyone who follows Jesus Male or female, slave or free, it doesn't matter. Jesus is abolishing long-standing traditions and long-standing positions and power and authority that, that religious leaders had taken to themselves. He's abolishing that. And he's saying, if you are my disciple and I am in you and you are proclaiming my gospel, you have the power to tell someone who receives the gospel, who trusts in the finished work of Christ on the cross, you have the authority to tell them their sins are forgiven. If they reject that gospel, if they reject the finished work of Christ on the cross, you also have the authority to tell them that your sins are not forgiven. Because the only way our sins can be forgiven is through trusting Jesus. Through his finished work on the cross. Anything else we trust in, anyone else we trust in, you can be at rest assured that your sins are retained. You still have them. This authority was given to the church as a means of assurance, not as a means to release or condemn men in their sin. It was given to assure men that their sins are forgiven through faith in Christ, or their sin remains in their unbelief and rejection of Christ. The power to forgive sin belongs to God alone. It is through the preaching of the gospel that the authority to forgive sin or to retain it is demonstrated. No man has that authority outside the authority of the gospel. In other words, the Bible does not give any man special authority to forgive or retain sin. As it was then, it remains today. It, was, it is what men do with the gospel that determines whether a man is forgiven or not. You and I have the authority under Christ to assure them that as they trust in the finished work of Christ, they are forgiven. We also have the authority and the obligation to assure them that if they are rejecting the finished work of Christ, their sin is retained. For in rejecting Christ, we reject the only one who has the power to take away our sin. 
Through the preaching of the gospel, men are saved and their sins forgiven. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul, speaking of Christ after his resurrection, writes these words. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel, and it is through the preaching of the gospel that men are saved and their sins forgiven. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Faith in Christ is the assurance our sins are forgiven. Unbelief is the assurance our sin remains. Our sin is retained until the gospel of Jesus Christ effectively saves us. As the apostle wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is the good news. This is the peace Jesus brought to his disciples. This is the peace Jesus proclaims to us today. This is the reason we should not be fearful. Everybody wants to live. Everyone who understands what gift, what a gift life is, desires to live. The reason we're afraid of things like viruses and, and terminal illnesses and the threat of death is because there is a desire to live. Because when we understand the gift that life is, there should be a desire to live. And we should resist those things that would want to take life from us. That is very normal. And the Bible deals very honestly with these subjects. The Bible doesn't deny the reality of death. The Bible doesn't say, oh, well, just don't think about death. You know, just, just wait till it gets here and then think about it. The Bible doesn't do that. Jesus didn't do that with his disciples. He told them, you're going you're gonna to experience tribulation. They're going to hate you. They're going to seek to kill you. They are going to kill you. You will have tribulation in this world, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. How do we reconcile that tension? How do we reconcile that reality? It's by understanding exactly what Jesus said. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Whatever situation, whatever circumstance, whatever befalls me in this life, even if it kills me, is momentary compared to what God has given to me in Jesus Christ that is eternal. And there is no devil in hell. There is no virus on earth. There is nothing that can take the life, the eternal life that has been given to me by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The worst thing a virus can do is take my physical life and I'm in the presence of the Lord. The worst thing anyone can do is, is snuff out my life, my physical life. But they can't take my eternal life. This is why Jesus said, don't fear those who have the power to, to kill your body. Fear God who has the power to cast your soul into hell. If God has forgiven your sin, if you are trusting in Jesus, you have no reason to fear. Live. Seek life. Go after life. Protect your life. Live healthy. Live as long and as healthy as you can. But understand one day you're going you're gonna to meet death. But death will be nothing more in that day than the servant that will take you face to face with Jesus. You don't have to fear. You don't have to fear. And all of that, all of that is made possible through this table.
this table that reminds us of this truth. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot depend on any other man or any other woman to save us. We can't depend on a government, local or national, to save us. Because it can't do it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He alone has the power and the authority to save us. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is good news. And as you trust Jesus and the good news of his salvation, you are welcome to come to this table. Come to Jesus. Celebrate the life he provides us through his death and through his resurrection. Church, come to the table and welcome to Jesus. Let's stand. The power of God has overcome sin and death. The resurrected Christ lives and reigns as Lord over all. I want you to understand this church. He has conquered the world. It doesn't matter what you see. It doesn't matter what you hear. Jesus has conquered. There is no reason to fear. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you by grace through faith in his name. Walk in that power. The peace of God is not some elusive thing that we will never fully grasp on this earth. Peace is more than our emotional state of being. He himself is our peace. Peace is personified in Jesus. If we are in Christ, we have a peace the world can never provide. The peace we have in Christ is a peace that surpasses understanding. Walk in his peace, even in the midst of the raging storm. The authority Christ has given us in his name is an authority greater than any in heaven or on earth. We have been commissioned and commanded to go in his authority and make disciples of all the nations in his name. Walk in that authority. We are commanded to walk in his power, his peace, and his authority. To see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Obey his command now for our sake and for the generations to come and for his glory. Amen.